Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Dr. Elizabeth Boham. Elizabeth is a physician and nutritionist who practices functional medicine at the Ultra Wellness Center in Lenox, Massachusetts. After being diagnosed with an aggressive type of breast cancer, at the age of 30, she learned firsthand how important it is to address every system in the body in order to achieve optimal healing. Through the functional medicine approach, Dr. Boham helps patients restore balance in their bodies so they can prevent disease and heal. Dr. Boham is an IFM certified practitioner, as well as board certified in family medicine. She received her undergraduate degree in nutritional biochemistry from Cornell University and her graduate degree and registered dietitian from Columbia University. She witnesses the power of nutrition every day in her practice and is committed to training other physicians to utilize nutrition in healing. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Dr. Boham. But before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center, who makes the show possible. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I have been so looking forward to our conversation today. Oh, Haley, I'm so excited to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And, you know, first, I really just want to start off with hearing a little bit about your background and how what led you to, to do functional medicine. Yeah. So, you know, my my undergraduate and graduate degree was in nutrition and exercise physiology. So I was always really interested in prevention and wellness and integrative health. And then I sort of found my way and ended up being in, in medical school, which, you know, as I look back on it now, was a wonderful opportunity. But going through it, it was, it was a lot, you know, it was, I had no idea what I was getting into. I had everybody in my family is like PhDs. There's no MD. So I really had no idea what it meant to go to medical school and the training involved. And, you know, it was, it was at times exhausting. And I, and I, and I feel like at times I fought the process, you know, because my, my undergraduate degree, as I said, and in, in graduate work was all in wellness and prevention. And here I am, you know, just learning about acute care medicine and disease. And, and I, was, I was a little frustrated. And then in the middle of the whole thing, <laughs> I get cancer, right? <sighs> and um, so I was in residency, you know, so I was 30 and in residency. And well, that really you know, shook me to the core, somebody who was all excited and about prevention and wellness. And now all of a sudden, here I am with this really life-threatening disease and needing to go through 
treatment and I had amazing, wonderful treatment um, in conventional medicine. I am so thankful for how quickly everybody took care of me and and the treatment that I received. But it was what what a sort of this journey of somebody who just felt like we could prevent everything. And then all of a sudden, you know, getting this crazy diagnosis, it sort of just throws you off your your game a little bit, right? Oh, for sure. Right. You're like, oh my gosh. So when I got through, you know, cancer treatment and then I got through my residency and then actually um, I was determined to have kids. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to. And I got pregnant pretty quickly, actually. Um, my oncologist was not so happy with me, but I was lucky to be able to, my periods came back and I got pregnant pretty quickly after treatment. And so, but when I got through those pregnancies and breastfeeding and all that sort of stuff, I started to try to figure out, okay, how am I going to integrate, you know, my conventional medicine training, my belief in in nutrition and wellness and prevention, and how can I integrate all of that? And I was really, I was really lucky. I got a job at Canyon Ranch in Lenox, Massachusetts. And that's where I met Mark Hyman and Kathy Swift and Todd Lapine and um, Cindy Geyer. And I, um, I was just so blessed to get this job. And one of the first things that I did there is they I, they sent me to uh, the IFM training. So the Institute, Institute for Functional Medicine. And I went to the training. Um, they had this week-long training course called AFMCP. And I I was sent there as like, you know, just for one of my first first parts of my job there. And I was blown away. I was just like, it was just amazing because it was, it taught us, AFMCP teaches functional medicine and it was teaching us a different way of thinking about health and disease and, and really focusing on that individual person, looking at their systems in their body and what is out of balance for them and what do they need to work on to get healthy and whole. And it was just such a great way for me especially just kind of going through having gone through cancer to kind of step back and look at my health. And so I was, you know, I was really good at eating healthy and exercising, but there were a lot of things that I wasn't so good at. And so it really, I learned a lot about where I needed to focus with my own health and well-being, and how I, what I needed to do to get to help prevent, you know, cancer from coming back and and help create this terrain in your body where cancer is less likely to grow, right? So I I kind of, it it sort of brought it all together for me. And so that's kind of how I got into functional medicine. Oh, that's amazing. Amazing. And so, like you said, you were able to look at, you know, how and why did this happen? And, you know, I always say to people, it's not to blame you for, for having this diagnosis, but just to empower you to learn and and to figure out, you know, how to hopefully avoid recurrence. Um, what were the things that you found that, you know, were the root causes, if you have found anything that was the precipitous to your getting cancer? Right. And, you know, this is one of the things we do in functional medicine is we do a timeline. So when we get to meet somebody, we take their history, like a detailed past medical history and their life history, and we put it along a timeline. And then we create this matrix, which is just a way of looking at where are their imbalances in somebody's systems in their body, as well as their personalized lifestyle factors. So it's it's just the way that we, we go about taking care of people in functional medicine. And so when I did that for myself, I realized there were certain things that probably had a pretty big impact 
on my risk. And, and one of them, you know, along my timeline is when I was young, I, uh, from, you know, from I probably the age of five to 16, I had chronic urinary tract infections and I was placed on lots of antibiotics. And so what I realized and what we're realizing is that, you know, antibiotics, of course, sometimes they're necessary, but they can shift your microbiome. And we're learning more and more about how our microbiome influences our risk of cancer. And so, so, so that it's fascinating. There's like a new article almost every day, right? That's looking at the impact of the microbiome on our health. And there's, there's a microbiome, there's all our good and and not so good bacteria and fungi and, and, and viruses in all different tissues in the body, right? So we, we, we realize that that's something interesting to pay attention to. We know that when the microbiome is shifted, that that can influence how the body is able to get rid of estrogen actually. And that can then have an influence on breast cancer risk. But there's, there's, lots, of, there's lots of research looking at the microbiome and all sorts of different cancers and we don't have it all figured out, but I do feel that for myself, that probably had some impacts because it also then impacted my digestion, right? And I became, you know, I didn't, I didn't eliminate as well. And that's really important for detoxification. And, and um, so there's, there's a lot of things that, that I think then influence somebody's risk. The other thing I learned a lot about was some of my SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms. So these are little shifts there's shifts in your DNA and everybody has them. There are these um, almost like low penetrance genes. Like you think of there's certain genes that are considered high penetrance genes, something like BRCA, for example, when somebody has that gene, it increases the risk of cancer significantly, right? But there are also these low, uh, low penetrance genes where they, lots of people have these variations, but that does influence how we detoxify, how we methylate, how much vitamin D we need, how much, um, how at risk we are for having stress, you know? And so what I learned also is that I have some variations that impact how I'm able to mobilize toxins. And so an area that I've had to really work on, and we can talk more about is just like toxin avoidance and helping the body get rid of toxins. And then I would say the probably a huge area that I had to do a ton of work on was stress management and how I dealt with stress. And I'm sure like my, you know, fighting my medical school training was not helpful for my immune system. <laughs> I was really fighting when I got diagnosed. I was like, why am I in the ICU? You know, um, why am I working in the ICU tonight? Right. So, you know, just in terms of mindset and stress and how it's not that stress in and of itself is bad. It's how we're reacting to the stress we're going through that really influences our immune system and how our immune system works. And so that was something I spent, I had to spend a lot of time really focusing on and and learning better ways of handling and that stress and, and interacting with the world around me. So those were kind of probably, I think, my big areas. Yeah. I mean, stress to me, it when I had ovarian cancer, I was completely stressed out for a year before I ever got cancer. So I can see that as such, you know, a big factor. And like you said, it's not that it causes cancer, but there is some relation. It it lowers your immune system, right? Absolutely. We know that when we're under chronic stress and that when we, when we don't have an outlet for dealing with that stress, right? So it's just 
it's like happening to us almost, right? So we're not really working to to mitigate it when we're not doing all the tools to help mitigate the stress that when we're in that situation, our natural killer cell function is lower, right? So those cells that go out and find abnormal cells in the body and gobble them up, you know, they don't work as well. So there's a lot of reasons why there's this connection, but that is, you know, one one big reason. So yeah. And so I wanted to ask you, if someone comes to you that has cancer, breast cancer, whatever it may be, what is the first thing you do? Like what kind of testing can they do? I heard you say about SNPs. So what would you recommend someone does? So, you know, I think the first thing, as I said, we really get a good history and try to figure out what's out of balance for that person, because that can help guide us in terms of evaluation for them. And then and then we always focus on um, where they need to work in terms of lifestyle first, right? So um, in, it, we, in functional medicine, at the base of the matrix, that's called your personalized lifestyle factors. Those are, you know, that's getting good sleep, getting good movement, making the right food choices, managing stress and and having good relationships and networks, right? And so what I feel is really important is we we look to see for that person where do they need to focus. So for me, it was that real that was that stress section, right? That I had to do a lot of work on. But for some people who come to see me, it's the nutrition, right? They're, they, that they're, and there's a lot they can do to, to lower risk, lower inflammation in their body, create this terrain where cancer is less likely to grow. And, and, you know, there's so much we can do from a nutrition perspective. So we really start there a lot and work to balance blood sugar and decrease those spikes in glucose and insulin that we know help to feed cancer, right? So we know that when we can uh, balance our blood sugar and prevent spikes in blood sugar, prevent spikes in insulin, that that can have, you know, can decrease risk of recurrence or decrease risk of cancer, as well as so many other diseases as well. So, so we really pay attention to what's going on in their diet, blood sugar and insulin levels, and work with people to make sure that at each meal, they're balancing their blood sugar. So that means they're having a good source of protein, a good source of fat, a good source of fiber, and, you know, the, incorporating that into their meal so that they don't, their blood sugar is not doing those sorts of things because then the insulin will do that too. And that is, is you know, helps to feed cancer growth. So, and there, that's been associated with so many different types of cancer, not every cancer out there, but so many different types of cancer. So we do focus on that a lot. And, um, and in terms of testing, you know, that's, there's so much we could go into there, but there's, you know, we'll look at, we'll look at everything, like I said, from a fasting insulin and C-reactive protein, which is a marker for inflammation. We, we do even basic blood tests that look at like vitamin D level and B vitamin levels with homocysteine and, and B12 and methylmalonic acid. Um, we look at zinc levels, you know, zinc versus copper. And um, and then we do sometimes do genetic SNP testing. Um, right now I'm using this company three by four, but there's a lot of different companies out there that look to see where you may really focus with that person. So as I mentioned, if there's if somebody has a lot of variations in how they produce glutathione, which is this really master antioxidant detoxifier, then we may do more to support them there. Right. Um, 
So those are just a few. There's just other ones we could talk about too, but that's kind of a, a few that we start with. Yeah, that's really helpful. And so you don't necessarily recommend one diet, right? You you kind of work with the patient and and figure out what works best for them. I think it's really important to personalize the nutrition approach. It is critical for so many reasons. One, what will the patient do? What do they want to do? And you know, and then then what are their biomarkers telling us? So if you've got somebody who looks like they have some signs of insulin resistance, prediabetes, maybe they're having those spikes in blood sugar, or we see that they're gaining weight around their belly, you know, we know that that metabolic syndrome likes to feed cancer. And so in those situations, we're going to we're going to lower carbohydrates more. We're going to really make sure that they're not getting, you know, anything with flour in it, flour and sugar, essentially, right? You pull away things that have um, flours, you know, wheat flour, as well as other flour um, and then sugar out of their diet, right? You really, people then you're really focusing on a diet that has at each meal, a good protein source and lots of vegetables and their carbohydrates will be coming from vegetables mostly, right? So when you see that, that's where you're going to be really focusing. Um, and, and then the other area we focus on with, with diet is really just eating the rainbow with our patients, right? So we know that there's this just amazing phytonutrients in our plant foods. So there's, there's um, phytonutrients are these components in plant foods that have this these amazing benefits for the body. So they've been shown to lower risk of cancer. They've been shown to a lower inflammation in the body. And so when we work with somebody, we say, okay, we really want to eat the rainbow. You want to get some, some plant food from every color of the rainbow every day. So something that's red and orange and yellow and green and blue and purple and white and tan, right? And you want to vary it and have lots of different colorful plant foods in your diet because that will really help with everything from supporting your detoxification system to feeding the good bugs in your body, that microbiome to, to uh, uh, helping like there's been some studies that actually show that phytonutrients can block some of the carcinogenic effects of toxins. So they can even show on a cellular level how these phytonutrients are working, right? So the toxins can cause oxidative stress in the body and they can damage cells, but the phytonutrients come in and can actually block that. So, so th that's an area we really will focus on a lot as well. That's so great because it seems so doable, right? It, it seems like anyone could do that. Eat a color from the rainbow. It's like, what, what should you eat, right? And so the general recommendation is eight to 12 servings of phytonutrients in a day. But that includes vegetables, fruits, spices, teas, and coffees. So, you, so, so it's not just you know, fruits and vegetables. It's also the spices, I think is just phenomenal to remember. And um, so sometimes people are like eight to 12, how do I even, how do I do that? But, you know, when you start to layer them into your meals, you know, you, you can't, it's, it is doable. You know, you think, okay, I'm making an omelet for breakfast. Let's say I'm going to throw in some extra vegetables. I'm going to throw in some spinach and tomatoes and mushrooms 
And then, you know, you've got three right there, right? And maybe some berries on the side, right? So it is, it's just incorporating more of that color to onto your plate is what we want to focus on. Yeah. And when you say eight to 12 servings, would you say, I mean, does that equal cups or for people who don't know what eight to 12 servings is? It's such a great question. A great question because it depends on which food we're talking about, right? So in general, this is a big generalization, but it's about a cup of raw. So let's say it was spinach, about a cup of raw. It would be like a half a cup of cooked vegetables in general, but spinach, you know, cooks down to nothing. So (laughs) it was for that. And then like for a spice, it's, it's even like a you know, a teaspoon or a tablespoon, depending on like if it's dried or fresh, right? So, so it it does really vary in terms of amount because it depends on the the vegetable or plant food that we're talking about. Okay, got it. You know, and you can count like what what we sometimes have people is like if they're keeping a journal or you know count. Okay, did I have something from every color and and how many am I getting in about in a day? Because sometimes that helps people incorporate more. But in general, it's also just saying, okay, let's just enjoy all these different wonderful plant foods out there and look to get more color on my plate and remove things that may not be so good for my blood sugar or may not be may not be nutrient dense, right? So, you know, maybe I don't need they maybe that piece of toast that's, you know, not really giving me a lot of nutritional density, but instead I put some, uh, I'm going to use squash because this is such a squash time of year, you know, squash on my plate instead, that's a great substitute where you're going to get more nutrition. You're going to get more color. You're going to get more phytonutrients. You're going to get more vitamins and minerals and it's got more and but more fiber and better for blood sugar. So that's just like an example. Yeah. The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting-edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarlfoldcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. I wanted to ask you about blood sugar um, because that's another topic, I guess, controversy. There's some controversy because you hear registered dietitians that I actually see on Instagram, you know, saying sugar does not feed cancer and you don't have to watch your sugar and this, that, the other. And, you know, it sounds like the glucose drives the insulin and the insulin is a big problem. So what would you say, like your fasting insulin, your A1C, what is ideal for someone's number to be? And then, and also glucose. You know, I think that's, it's such a great question about what is ideal in terms of numbers in a lab, because 
Because as a physician, right, we look at the whole picture and there are times, and I think I'm just, I just want to put this out there because there are times somebody will have a slightly abnormal number, but all their other numbers look fine. And I think it's important to remember it's the whole picture. And sometimes some people do run a little high in, in one specific number, but if their whole picture doesn't show some abnormalities, then it may not be a problem. So with that, with that caveat, I would say, I usually like fasting insulin. I have people check fasting insulin. I check it all the time in my patients. So I like it around four or five. General research shows greater than 12 is a concern for fasting insulin. There's other reasons why fasting insulin may be low. So we also, again, have to look at the whole picture. But for most people, around four or five or a slight bit lower, glucose, you know, you definitely want to be below 100 fasting for blood sugar. You know, some people are saying maybe lower than 90, like 70 to 90 is ideal, but definitely less than 100. If your glucose, if your fasting blood sugar is starting to go over 100, that is a sign that, okay, maybe there's some pre-diabetes going on here. Maybe there's some metabolic syndrome. And um, so I look at the two of those numbers together. Hemoglobin A1C, 5.5 or, or less, you, you know, when you start to get over 5.5, you get concerned again that that blood sugar is just running a little too high. And, and then I also look at waist to hip ratio. So if you're holding on to too much weight around the midsection, that can be a sign of insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome as well. So we're always checking waist to hip ratio. And so for women, you want to be uh, less than 35 inches or the waist to hip ratio less than 0.8 is ideal. So those are, those are just some numbers that we're looking at. Right. And do you recommend people wear a blood glucose monitor? That's a great question. So I think it depends on the person. We do clinical rounds every week in our practice, and we have this conversation all the time. So even practitioners don't all agree on this one. But what I'll say is that for some people, it's very motivating. They put it on and they're like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that my oatmeal was spiking my blood sugar so high. And instead at breakfast, I need to really cut down the amount of oats I'm having or having more steel cut oats and putting more protein and fat into that bowl so I don't get that spike, for example. Just giving you an example, right? So for some people, it's so motivating and helpful. For other people, it's exhausting and it's depleting. And so we 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 do see that it can create um eating disorders. I mean it can definitely it can definitely feed unhealthy relationships with food. It can um it can cause some people to get too careful. And so it's very important to to really think about if you are using one you're on yourself to really just pay attention to that and say, okay, is this helping me? Or has this been, what did I learn from it? And what can I take from it? And, you know, and, and what is your relationship with the device? So I think, I think it can be a very helpful tool for some, in some situations, but I don't think it's always necessary. And I think we have to watch because for some people it's not helpful. It's more stressful. Yeah. And we do know a lot, actually, this is one of the things we get feedback on the most. People realize that stress causes their blood sugar to go up. And so people really see that with their continuous glucose monitor, which is actually a great feedback for, you know, for, from a lot of our patients where they'll be like, I didn't realize that how much stress was impacting my blood sugar. And now I know that I have to really be paying attention to it. So right. we do have to think about that a lot. Exactly. It's that balance. And, and people with cancer, they're so worried about 
or most people are so worried about their diet anyways. And, right. and you can get so stressed out about, oh my gosh, am I eating the right things? Then you put the blood sugar on top of that. But yeah, it's that balance. You're absolutely right. It really is about balance. And I, I feel that that's important for us to pay attention to with nutrition and and with toxins, right? So like, you know, we get into the space of, okay, I need to avoid toxins, but we live in a world where there's so many toxins around us and it, it really can be paralyzing for some people, you know, you and, and really ex- adding extra stress. So we always just want to do the best we can do. And I think that's really important, you know, and, and there's times that we're not going to be perfect with our diet or we might, we, we might not, we'll be eating out and it won't be a hundred percent organic. And, you know, that's, that's okay. I mean, we want to reach for organic as much as possible, but we also want to recognize that we want to just do the best we can. And that's, that's really, really important. Mm, Such a good point. Yeah. Because people put so much pressure on themselves. There's no doubt. Yeah. And it reminds me of, of toxins because yes, we are surrounded by toxins, but I wanted to ask you, what are those things we can control when it comes to toxins? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that's a great point. So one of the things that I focus on with people is just food storage, right? So make sure that you store your food in glass, you know, get rid of the Tupperware and the plastics, store your food in glass, heat your food in, if it's, you're putting in the microwave in glass, you know, or on the stovetop, you know, that kind of thing and not, not use plastics. We know that that's, that that can, those things can leach into the food. Um, Whole food diet, because the more packaging around our food, the, you know, that does leach into our food. So, re, you know, you know, working to increase the number of times you're preparing healthy food at home and whole foods um, is, is good. So avoiding BPA, you know, that was, I think it was, was that 1971 or in the 70s at Tufts where they realized that there, the plastic in the test tubes was influencing their breast cancer research. And so we realized that that BPA can influence the estrogen receptor. And so we want to try to avoid BPA. So again, moving away from the hard plastics. I always tell people, you know, just because a bottle says BPA-free does not mean it's 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 a it's an okay thing, right? Because a lot of times they'll change the molecular structure slightly. So it might not be officially BPA, but it's fits, you know, we don't know how that's impacting the estrogen receptor really. And that's just a good question. You just made me think. I keep seeing BPA-free can, you know, for canned foods, but is there something else they're using that might not be so good? That's a great question from, you know, I mean, I definitely recommend people go with BPA-free cans and 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 more organic because it'll be a better, but, but I am not 100% sure what they're using instead, or if they have to use something instead to, to line the can. But then also, again, thinking about, you know, for beans and tomatoes and things you, you do go for cans for, you know, what, what can we do more with fresh foods, dried beans, those kind of things It just, it does help. doesn't mean we have to be hundred percent again, right? We want to talk about balance, as we mentioned earlier. Um, our lawn, you know, pay attention to what we're putting on our lawn, pesticides and herbicides and avoiding those parabens, what we're putting on our body, right? Avoiding uh, looking at your moisturizers, your makeup, um, and making sure that there's no parabens in there. And just remember that they might say methyl paraben or, or a different paraben, like, and that you want to look at the label and, and just make sure there's no added parabens in it. And if you're if you're looking for good options or you want some good recommendations, the Environmental Working Group has a wonderful website with tons of great information about different products and 
skincare products out there and, you know, making sure you've got, you know, clean water and, and then also supporting our body's ability to detoxify. So avoidance, but also supporting how our body is set up to detoxify, right? So we, we have this, our body has this whole detoxification process that we're doing all the time, you know, so making sure we're drinking enough water and having you know, regular uh, urination and, and lots of fiber because that binds to toxins and helps it get eliminated through our stool. Sweating through movement or exercise really is, is great, is a great way to detoxify. Some people use saunas and that's wonderful too. Um, breath work, we detoxify through breath. And, um, and so, you know, really supporting the body's detox system and our liver really does a lot of work with detoxification. And one thing we do see sometimes is if somebody's not eating enough food, they're not eating enough calories, if they're not eating enough protein, if they're just not eating enough of all of the vitamins and minerals, you know, that the body can't detoxify as well. So just, you know, getting enough nutrition is good too. Yeah. No one's ever mentioned that before. And that's such a good point. Wow. I never thought about it. We need all these different nutrients. So nutrients are like cofactors, right? They help all these processes happen in the body. So we need to have all these nutrients for those, for those detoxification processes to work. We also need to have enough protein for our body's detoxification process to work. And so one of the things we do pay attention to is making sure somebody's getting, uh, you know, sufficient protein. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, I, I love vegetable proteins, but I also like animal proteins too. And I think a balance there is is really help, healthy for a lot of people. And so, you know, um, you know, you, there's, there's, there, there's some good stuff in both. Um, so I think that, you know, balancing the two is wonderful and that's typically what I'll recommend. Like that's another area, area we definitely personalize. Some people want to be more vegetarian or vegan. And so we just make sure with them that they're getting enough protein. Um, other people are, uh, want to have more of a balance or if they have any signs of metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, sometimes they just need to get more of their protein from some animal sources just to help their blood sugar. And so, you know, adding in some uh, sardines and and salmon and uh, healthy meats, um, I think are good too, to help balance blood sugar and um, for overall health and nutrition. Yeah, so does the protein depend on the person's age and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So, you know, I guess, you know, there there's a lot of interesting research out there on protein and cancer. And, and this is an area where I feel that for most of my patients, I think we need to talk about moderation and, and recognizing that there's some good in both sources, vegetable and animal protein. So vegetable proteins have a lot of fiber in them and they're, they're um, you know, beans and legumes, soy, healthy forms of soy are really uh, nuts and seeds, great sources, but it's hard. It is really hard to get in enough protein sometimes when you're just eating vegetarian. And or vegan. And a lot of times when people are making that choice, but they go out to eat and what is, what's the option? You know, they end up getting pasta, right? Because there's, that's, that's, that's all the restaurant makes. They don't make, you know, um, a, a great vegan option sometimes. And so from a blood sugar perspective, from that blood sugar spike and insulin spike, 
and even nutrient density, they're not getting everything they need, right? So, so I think balance is really key here. So I'll really encourage people to, to have some of some of both. We don't want to overdo it with animal protein. You know, there's definitely too much is is not is not great here. We we want to balance it with your vegetable proteins. And so I'll say to people, well, if you have some, you know, if you have some eggs at breakfast, then maybe you want to have a, a bean stew at lunch and then maybe, uh, you know, salmon or sardines at dinner. I don't know. Mixing it up is, I think, really a great way to do it with protein, honestly. I think probably there's probably some genetics here that we don't have all figured out. And also the how well somebody's digestive system works. So some people can digest and absorb protein from vegetable sources really well, and other people struggle with that. They they don't tolerate a lot of proteins, a lot of vegetable proteins like beans and legumes, or or they might those vegetable proteins might trigger a spike in their blood sugar, and and so for that reason, you know, mixing it up, I think, can be really helpful. Yeah, and the reason I asked about age because. I was told by someone like when you're younger, you really need a lot of protein because you're growing. And then when you're older, maybe 40 and above, um, you're losing some, you know, muscle mass and all that kind of stuff. So it helps to increase your protein. Yeah. I mean, I would say that as we get older, is it 40 or is it 60 or we'll see, we'll see that the, the amount, the percentage of your diet that needs to come from protein increases for a couple of reasons. One, because you're not eating as many calories, you know, your caloric intake goes down typically and how well you can digest and absorb your proteins from your food sometimes decreases and and the amount that you need to build lean muscle mass. And we know that lean muscle mass is critical for metabolism and, um, and strength and overall aging. And so, so that, that, that does influence our needs. Yeah. And I was going to say, is there a number you're looking for? I know I'm like being so specific, but people ask those kind of questions a lot. Like how much protein should I have in a day and all that? I think that the the most, the easiest number that I can give to a whole audience, right, is one gram per kilo of body weight. So so if you take your, your weight in pounds and divide it by 2.2, and let's say you've got your 70 kilos in terms of your weight, then you'd want to get about 70 grams of protein in a day. That's a general recommendation. Some people can get away with a little bit less. A lot of people need a little bit more, but um, but that's about that's a very good uh, general recommendation. Okay, thank you. So helpful. And you know, before we get into random round. Any last piece of advice for someone who maybe has finished treatments and, you know, looking to avoid recurrence and then maybe also, you know, for someone who was just diagnosed? You know, I think that a couple of, one of the things that I think helped me the most was, was having a lot of complementary practices within my healing journey. So I was really blessed. My mom gave me a gift of weekly Reiki sessions when, um, when I was going through treatment. And so I would go have Reiki once a week and, um, it was just amazing. It was wonderful because it helped to calm down my, you know, my body that was going through so much, right. With treatment and, and all of that. And, and my mind and all, it was very calming for me. And it really profoundly changed me in a way I can't even explain but i do think that those those complementary 
uh, practices can be really beneficial to somebody's cancer journey. So like Reiki acupuncture, I think is phenomenal. I think it can be very helpful for some of the side effects of treatment and also just can help energetically. Um, it can help hormonally with hormone balance too. So I think acupuncture is great. And, and so I would, I would pull in some of those other modalities, uh, body work, you know, healing massage, you know, hands-on things, uh, as I said, Reiki and acupuncture. I think those things are, are really wonderful. And then I think for everyone, whether we're just going through treatment or, or are done with treatment, I think the other areas that really helped me, and I feel like I always want to bring this up with my patients because I feel like it helps everybody is journaling, you know, really just writing down thoughts, where you're coming from, how is this impacting you, adding a gratitude practice to your journaling, right? Where you write down, you know, three things every day that you're grateful for. That can really be very helpful for, you know, moving through this whole process. I love that you said that because my best friend gave me a journal when I was diagnosed and to write three things at least that you're grateful for every day. And I did use it sort of as a journal. Sometimes I complained a little bit, but then I said what I was grateful for at the end. And I think it just helps tremendously. Absolutely. Like, and there's nothing wrong with complaining, right? You know what I mean? Like, like you were like, you know, we don't, we shouldn't feel bad about complaining because it's like, it, it's, you know, it sucks. It's hard. Like you, even if you can realize, okay, this is, I'm learning from this. It's, it's, it's a very hard process for so many people. Right. And so I think that's a great use of a journal sometimes is to complain and to, you know, kind of work through some of that. But gratitude journaling is phenomenal. And I remember when I first started it, I was, I couldn't think of anything to be grateful for. I was just, I was so angry at the world. I was pissed off. I was like, <laughs> and, um, but I, I always tell the story. I'd, I was watching Oprah at the time because back when she was on TV and, um, and she talked about gratitude journaling. And so I, um, I said, okay, I'm going to try this. And when I first started, I just, I couldn't think of anything, you know, and I would write a food, the sun, like I, <laughs> really like I couldn't think of anything. And then over time, it became easier, you know, things would come to me, it became easier. And then probably the most amazing thing I think about the whole thing is that it changed the way that I feel gratitude on a moment to moment basis in my day. So now I'll look and I'll be, I could notice myself being grateful for that beautiful tree out there, you know, that's changing its leaves or being grateful for this situation. And, and prior to me doing my gratitude journal, that's not how my mind worked. I, I was definitely more of a glass half empty kind of a mindset. Right. And so, so I find it phenomenal that that practice actually helped me change my mindset a little bit or a lot. And to this to this day, I notice when I'm coming up with things to be grateful for when I'm not even trying. And um, I think it's 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 really, really powerful. Ah, oh, you're absolutely right. And it, it like you said, it it almost turns into a habit because you don't even notice that you're doing it. And all of a sudden you you are noticing these things that you're so grateful for. Yeah. Well now are you ready for random round? I guess I am. <laughs> Fill in the blank. Freedom to you is? Freedom to me is um, freedom to me. movement. I love, I love to move. I love, I feel free when my body is moving and I love to dance. I love to get outside. I like to go for hikes. 
I love to exercise and run. So um, for me, I feel free when I'm moving. The last show you binged and loved. So I, and I'm still binging and loving it, um, is Call the Midwife. <laughs> oh, I never saw it. I love, oh my goodness, I love it. Every episode of Baby's Born. Um, <laughs> if I didn't have to sleep so much, I might have, you know, be be delivering more babies, but no, it's so <laughs> fun. It's, um, you know, it's on PBS. They're on like their 12th season and it's uh, set in the 50s and 60s in London and their midwife's deliver babies in every, every, every episode. There's, I don't usually like medical shows because um, I, I am a physician, so I don't usually, but this one I love. It's not really medical. It's more, it's more uh, history, I guess I would say. It's, I like it. Oh, it sounds great. When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? I, uh, I take some deep breaths. You know, uh, I think Breath work is so phenomenal and it's something I'm trying to practice every day. Um, but when I'm feeling afraid, I'll say, okay, take that deep breath, you know, a count of four breathing in and a count of six to breathe out. And it really, it's just even a couple breaths will calm down my crazy sympathetic nervous system, right? <laughs> if you could have a one hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? Uh, one one book that I read when I was going through this whole process was uh, Kitchen Table Wisdom by Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen. And it's phenomenal. It's, you know, it came out a while ago, um, but she's she's amazing. She's a physician who really did a lot of work with the importance of listening to a patient's story. And um, as practitioners, sometimes we we struggle when we don't have the answers. And so often we don't have the answers, right? And so it really is a beautiful book all about patient stories and not only just patient stories, but stories and how they're healing. And it really influenced me a lot as a provider, as a physician and practitioner. So Rachel Naomi Remen, that's who I, that's who I talk to. Sounds great. What is your favorite go-to snack? Walnuts. Oh, I love walnuts. Walnuts everywhere. <laughs> the good one. Well, what's one simple thing that brings you joy? Um, getting outside and hiking. What's on your nightstand? Books, books. My oh, so I like to read books at night. Nothing medical. Um, what I'm reading right now, I'm just finishing up, is the Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane. The tea, tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane. It's a great book, actually. And it's it's all about tea. But no, it's, it's a story. It's a story. It's fiction. Ooh, and I like tea. <laughs> yeah, me too. What? Oh, well, you kind of answered this. Your favorite form of exercise. Well, you have a lot of them. I just love, I do love to move, um, but probably dance would be my favorite. So dancing, Zumba, that would be probably the one that I like the most. What's one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? Oh, my family. Yeah, my family, my kids, my husband, my parents, my extended family. I would say my family. Mm. And how can people reach you uh, if they want an appointment? And, 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 you know, I did forget to ask if someone is out of town, can they come see you? How does that whole thing work? 
Yeah. So um, I practice medicine at the Ultra Wellness Center and we're in Lenox, Massachusetts and uh, our website, ultrawellnesscenter.com. You can learn more and then get in touch with somebody. You can come to see us from out of town, um, but you do have to come in person now that the pandemic is over. Um, So the first appointment we do in person. And then you can also learn about me at drboham.com. That's my website or on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Elizabeth. Boham MD, I think. And uh, yeah, so those are all my, all the places. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much. This was so informative and I really enjoyed our conversation and I know it's going to help a lot of people. So thank you. Oh, it's great to be with you, Haley. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.